This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Coming up, a young activist and writer explains why Bernie Sanders' brand of socialism doesn't measure up to the real thing. A call for changemakers to imagine the unimaginable. And Mumia Abu-Jamal says the system that put him in prison is coming apart at the seams. But first, the superpower that wants to rule the world can't even muster the resources to combat a virus, the lowest form of life on the planet. In Philadelphia, Du Boisian scholar Dr. Anthony Montero says the American people have lost trust and belief in the system. We asked him if that fits the description of a crisis of legitimacy. The phrase crisis of legitimacy comes out of bourgeois liberal uh, political economy or political science, I should say. And it is a kind of statement that they use to talk about a form of distancing, I guess we're talking about distancing, a distancing of the people from the fundamental uh, political, social, and cultural institutions of a society. For example, a crisis of legitimacy occurs when the people no longer believe in or accept the authority of institutions of the state. That's an example of it when, for example, they no longer accept the views of, and I put quotes, experts, mainly academics or people in the scientific field, or when they no longer believe the news media. It is a breakdown in trust. But at the end of the day, from the standpoint, let us say, of the black radical tradition or of the Marxist tradition, we could say that a crisis of legitimacy is ultimately a crisis of rule, a crisis of governance. And at its deepest and most intense sense, it is a crisis of the state. And as you set this up, I think it, is, it points us in the right direction because you ask the question, can the system of bourgeois rule, of bourgeois governance maintain itself? Can the state hold or will it collapse under the weight of mass opposition and mass distancing? When I say mass, the masses of people distancing themselves from the authority of the state, no longer accepted. Lenin spoke of it as a situation where the ruling class or the political class or the governing class cannot govern or rule in the old way and the people will not accept being ruled in the old way. In a certain sense, we might be approaching a crisis of that magnitude, a point at which there is no return, a point at which the old cannot hold, but we are not yet 
certain of what comes after it? Uh, will there be a long night of uncertainty, of a failure of governance, of a failure of society itself? And the question is, is this convergence of crises, the pandemic that we are being engulfed with, which is leading to what could be, if not a global depression, a great global recession, a breakdown of the politics and systems of political governance and rule in all of the major centers of global capitalism, by which I mean North America and Europe. This convergence of crises might be more than the political class and the state can absorb, and thus a systemic breakdown of a character that, well, frankly, none of us had expected, and which few of us, if any of us, are prepared to address at this time. Here we have the state imposing restrictions on personal movement, unprecedented in U.S. history, and the onset of an economic crisis that is deeper already in some respects than any in recent times, and yet we have a government that was not even minimally prepared to deal with a health crisis for which they were forewarned. Yes. Well, you know, one, to deal with a health crisis, a epidemic for which they were forewarned, but were incapable of mobilizing the government to do anything about. And they've only begun to do it under the threat that if they don't do it, if they do not respond to the needs of the people, there might be the outbreak of uh, mass protests leading even to violent protests where the people put their demands forward. But the other part of it is that we're looking at something that is at the same time simple, you know, a pandemic leading to the imposition of forms of restriction that look like what they have been calling the Chinese model or the authoritarian model, which I don't find to be all of that unusual. The state, be it in a socialist or a semi-socialist country like China or the state in a imperialist capitalist country like the United States, the state often functions in similar ways. So this threat to society, and I think it is that, and to all of the institutions of society from the standpoint of the state is a matter that must be dealt with using measures that they call the Chinese model. So that's the way I see that. But I think the key thing is in this moment, what do the people do and what are the people thinking? And how are they judging and measuring the ruling class and its political wing? And what will that mean? Of course, we're in a year of a presidential or national election. How will that go? How will that impact what happens? And really, realistically, 
will we even be able to have an election in November? The profound weaknesses in the U.S. healthcare system, weaknesses that are so profound that one can hardly call it a system at all, clearly stem from privatization, relentless privatization, and austerity, relentless austerity. And yet privatization and austerity are all that the ruling capitalists have as a social vision. Yes, it's no question. And this is a 40-year process. In fact, if we think back, this shrinking of government began with Jimmy Carter. And you might recall the Congressional Black Caucus, when it was still black, protesting the cuts that the Carter administration were calling for. And of course, it sped up with Reagan, the eight years of Reagan. But Clinton, Bush too, and Obama must be held responsible for the ways that they have reconfigured a government to meet the needs of the biggest banks and corporations. That is the neoliberalization of the government itself. So we are at the point where, first of all, people had begun in their votes to protest the austerity that was started, I said, about 40 years ago. But then the austerity of the bailing out of the banks and the allowing of the people to try to make it the best they could. That protest. And then, of course, you talk about what has occurred since. People are in a state of anger and anxiety at a government, which for the last 40 years has betrayed them, has operated almost exclusively to the benefit of the biggest banks and corporations, and has pursued in international global policies a dollar hegemony and a military hegemony in defense of this American empire. All of this is now coming home to roost. We are faced with perhaps the greatest crisis domestically in the, tw- in, in the last hundred years, certainly the 21st century. In other words, I'm saying that the crisis that we're now facing looks like something greater, more devastating, and more profound than even the Great Depression itself, because it is total. It is not merely economic. It is engulfing the total system. Yes, it would be very difficult to blame this entirely on Trump. The American people have seen in a total shattering of American exceptionalism that they have a country that lags behind every single other rich country in the world and lots of the poor ones, while they have been led to believe that it is the greatest country in the world. Yeah, and I don't think the people even believe that any longer. When I say the people, you know, I'm talking about a good part of them. I think that which might define the American spirit and the American people's sense of themselves and their relationship to their government is a great skepticism. I think the American people have concluded that in many ways, 
we have been sold a bill of goods. And when we were around long enough to have seen where a good part of the American public were enthralled with patriotism and nationalism and xenophobia, today I don't think the American people are interested in war when they have this almost a growing class war at home. They're not interested in whether the dollar is strong when they are poor. And I think, therefore, that we're in the geography, the ideological and intellectual and even psychological geography of the mass of American people is so radically different from what it was even 20 years ago, even 10 years ago. It is not a revolutionary situation, but it is, as we began, it is creating a deepening crisis of legitimacy and a deepening crisis of governance and of rule. Yes, and in such crises, one of the things we observe is that the rulers don't have much to say, don't have anything sensical to say. And in that vein, during the last Democratic debate, which may be the last debate, Joe (laughs) Joe Biden said that the fact that the United States does not have universal health care has nothing to do with the current medical crisis. Well, yeah, Joe Biden, (laughs) an interesting, outdated, over-the-hill figure at a time like this, says everything that we need to have said about where the ruling class is. If you look at our choices in 2020 in November, we don't have a choice if we ever have had much of a choice. So... Joe Biden is a figure of the distant past who they're trying to make appear to be relevant. He is only relevant to the extent that a party that is dying, that is the Democratic Party, unraveling, feels that he is the only one, one that can unite the Democrats, or most of them, and can maybe unite enough uh, voters to defeat Trump. But beyond that, He has no relevance, but I think the whole idea that what we have to do is defeat Trump, this is before the coronavirus took over everything and all of the fear and anxiety. Now I think people are saying that that is not enough. And so in a lot of ways, you know, Biden is not enough. And if he is not enough, can he defeat Trump? And even if he defeats Trump, a man with his diminished capacities is pretty much unable to lead a country that is fragmenting and in many ways falling apart. Here we see the Democratic Party establishment drawing a line in the sand that puts the vast majority of Americans on the other side. I'm talking about the line they drew against universal medical care. Oh, yes. And the thing is, you know, it's it's quite interesting I think a good part of the Democratic Party elite realize that this country has to move to some form of universal health care, Medicare for all, and even something even larger. I think that is what the Sanders and Warren campaigns represented. And at various times, they were front runners. 
I mean, way out distancing Biden and the other kind of what we were calling establishment candidates. But I think the fact that both Warren and Sanders represented pretty much similar views on health care said to me that this was not only a push from the bottom, but it was also an acceptance at the top of the Democratic Party of the inevitability and necessity of such a system. Now, of course, it would take more than an election, an election of a president, or even what a Democratic congressional majority. It would require what we haven't seen for decades. That is a mass movement from below, a realignment politically from the bottom, from the masses of people, and a leadership which is prepared to do more than run for election. That is a leadership that is prepared to go to jail, prepared to put their lives on the line, prepared to mobilize the people, to do the political and ideological education of the people. I think in great measure, the failure of the Sanders campaign was that it was pretty much a movement from above. Its roots at the base of the Democratic Party were never as strong as some of the Sanders supporters were claiming. And that was the problem. And that is the problem. So I think this moment of crisis coming so quickly as it has forces us back to the people, back to those methods of struggle that were so important in the civil rights period, where leadership is not talking at or to the people, but talking with the people at the base of society. And that's what I think we need. I think that's a path to success. I think the methods of leadership, which are not based upon narcissism and egocentrism, but based upon sacrifice and acknowledging those who might not be that much like us. In the case of the white socialists, acknowledging the dynamism and centrality of the black proletariat, which was missing in the campaign of Sanders, a big and a huge failure. So I think we can draw lessons from that campaign, but from this current crisis, draw lessons that lead us back to the black movement of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. At the risk of pointing out the obvious, I must say that we can't expect any mass gatherings of any kind for the foreseeable future. Well, no, we can't, but we can use the technologies available to us. And of course, that's limited. But you know, in times like this, people have a little more time to think and reflect. And contrary to the beliefs of elites, ordinary people do think a lot and do reflect a lot. And now they're going to have a lot more time. Already, the regime has been forced to do things that it didn't want to do. In other words, it has adopted something that looks for them eerily similar to what they call the Chinese model, the so-called, and I put quotes, authoritarian model. In other words, they've gone off script of bourgeois liberalism and are being forced to adopt what are methods 
associated with socialism, what they call authoritarianism. And this is good. They have to do it. They're forced to do it because if they don't do it, they face a being engulfed by a mass uprising. So here you have this dialectic already playing out. Now, we are going to be allowed out of our houses soon. This thing, I don't think, will last forever. As with all uh, viruses, they peak and then they go into decline. I think that's natural. I think when people do once again have the possibility of meeting in larger gatherings face-to-face, there are going to be some serious conversations about how we move forward. That was Dr. Anthony Montero, an organizer with the Philadelphia Saturday Free School. Joshua Briand is a North Carolina-based activist and member of the Black Alliance for Peace, who used to be an enthusiastic supporter of Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders. But he sees the world differently now. Briand recently wrote an article in which he related how he was finally introduced to authentic socialism with the words, from each according to his abilities, to each according to his needs. It changed everything for me. I've always been someone who was kind of questioning everything. And so like when I saw things and I heard things about poverty or exploitation in general, it was always like, why do things have to be this way? And with that questioning of things, stumbling across socialism of all things, it kind of clicked for me and everything started to make sense of why things are the way they are and why things that I saw growing up or things that were violent to me, poverty or homelessness and all these different things that we see in our daily lives, that simple quote, a simple principle of socialism made sense. And ever since then, I've simply evolved and radicalized based off of that principle. But that socialism that you were introduced to isn't the same as Bernie Sanders' version of socialism. Absolutely. And that's what I have to grapple with, that contradiction. A conversation about Bernie Sanders was my first introduction to socialism. And and that's what took me over the next couple of years. I was able to grapple with that. What Bernie Sanders was offering was not the same thing that I was reading about from Angela Davis or Malcolm X or all these different other individuals, radical individuals who we're talking about something so much more than what Bernie Sanders was offering. And that's something I had to grapple with and something I had to actually admit to myself and to also the people around me that Bernie Sanders cannot be the end-all, be-all. But initially, you were quite intrigued and positive about Sanders. Your impression was that he was consistent and progressive and genuine. Yes. My impression of him was that since he was being so related to socialist ideology. I believe that. I was incorrect. And I was incorrect about, I was only, what, 18, 19 years old. And I was thinking that these things can be one and the same, I guess, in, in some way or another. And like, when it comes to Bernie Sanders, I was simply surprised learning later that about all of his other character flaws and political flaws when it comes to war and imperialism and things like that. And like, but first on, I was still a baby liberal even after discovering socialism, right? I was, I was still grappling with liberalism and had such a stranglehold on my viewpoints. And that's something that we all have, we, we all have at some point in our lives had to actually get away from to actually see things for the way they are and, and acknowledging the way that the Bernie Sanders actually is, and, and which is he's not a socialist. He is very much a standard U.S. progressive, which is still very much intent on 
maintaining um, U.S. capitalism and U.S. imperialism. And, and that's something that I had to wrestle with for a bit. And I ended up doing so, and it took me a bit, but I think I was able to do so after learning and reading more and just learning more about socialism and what, what it actually entails and how, how you actually can achieve it. You can achieve it through electoralism. You can't. Right. And that's something that many people that I see now, even I've got friends who are still grappling with that and wrestling with it to this day. And you're right that what we're seeing with the Bernie Sanders package, along with AOC and others, is actually a hollowing out of terms like abolition and resistance and revolution, misusing those terms. Absolutely. And that that is an age old tra- tactic. That is something that has been used, historically speaking, when it comes to watering down these ideas and these ideologies and these systems and doing so under the guise of trying to radically, quote unquote, change the system. But you can't radically change the system from inside the system. So it's like when we have these individuals like AOC, like Elon, like Bernie Sanders, who are using these words, what they're ultimately doing, whether deliberately or not, is misleading people. Misleading people into thinking that their route is the most sustainable, is the most likely is the most realistic route to achieving liberation or radical gains or quote-unquote progressive gains or whatever the case is, right? And so to have that, to have these people do that, to me, it reminds me of what Michael Max described as wolves in sheep clothing. Yes, liberation from what? Certainly not liberation from capitalism. Right, correct. But the thing is, with, with his wording and people actually believing that he's an anti-capitalist because he identifies as a socialist. He has been propped up as almost a liberator in and of itself. He's been propped up as if his principles and his policies will lead to a liberation from capitalist exploitation. And he's been propped up as an anti-war candidate as well, which can be further from the truth. I think maybe there's a case to be made that they're not doing this. Like Sanders and AOC, those types of that, this newfound progressive movement, quote-unquote, they're not doing it deliberately. And that's what I say in the article that I tried to make emphasize that like, like whether deliberately or not, this is what's happening. And this is the outcome of this movement, which is people being miseducated, people being misguided about the actualities of what being a socialist actually entails and what liberation from capitalist exploitation would actually entail in the grand scheme of things. Well, certainly Bernie Sanders and most of his allies don't like to talk about foreign policy. And when they do, they mimic U.S. policy as it currently exists, denouncing Venezuela, denouncing Nicaragua and such. Absolutely. And that's precisely my main issue with him. Beyond the whole miseducation aspect is the fact that he is a pretty standardized Democrat when it comes to foreign policy and war and imperialism. The social democratic policies that he's trying to put into place, these things would be funded based off of war and imperialism. You can't look at the money that the U.S. has and think that it should only be going towards social services for its citizens and not consider for once where and how that money was amassed, how the U.S. could become the wealthiest nation in the world. America owes reparations to colonized people, but both, both here and abroad. But just how like, almost universally amongst the left, we can agree that people like Jeff Bezos and stuff like that wouldn't be a billionaire without exploiting its workers. America wouldn't be the wealthiest nation on earth without constant war and terror. But with the way that we look at these things, we look at these things as people seeing it as an us versus them, where us in America, we get quote-unquote progressive gains with healthcare and free college and an uptick in our minimum wages. And But like 
that comes at a cost, that comes at an expense of black and brown people in the global south and third world countries. And it's quite fascinating how there are many people who are okay with that. And there are many people who don't consider for a second how in the world did the U.S. become this wealthy nation? How in the world does the U.S. accumulate all these resources that they have? Despite the fact that we know that they're constantly at war and that they're constantly terrorizing black and brown people in these non-Western countries, non-white countries. But it's quite fascinating to me to see this lack of urgency when it comes to the U.S. left, when it comes to U.S. imperialism. There is very little of a modern anti-war movement or anti-imperialist movement. There's a lacking of it. And there's such an emphasis on domestic policies, which is good, which is, which is needed, by the way. Like, obviously, people need health care. People need... People are in debt and people are dying, preventable deaths because of lack of adequate health care and all these things. And that, that is absolutely true. But like you have countries like Cuba and other, other countries, other radical revolutionary countries that are providing health care and providing these social services for their citizens without imperialism, without war, you know, what I'm saying? without exploitation of their colonized people or their indigenous people, you know, and it's like, but America doesn't have that. And it can't have that possibly because America was built on these principles of exploitation of this constant racialized terror. Yes, but, you know, this isn't unique to the soft capitalist left in the United States. In Europe, socialist and even communist parties were certainly not taking the side of the colonized people of their home countries. Yeah, this is definitely a Western phenomenon, a Western capitalist phenomenon, and I think that is issue amongst all of these groups and all these organizations, socialist organizations that the U.S. left in its entirety has failed to address the actualities of what these empires represent to the rest of the world. Absolutely, I think that it's an almost universal issue with the U.S. socialist organizations and European socialist organizations, communist organizations like that, and the organizations that are masquerading as radical revolutionary, but there's a disconnect between the Western left and working class and colonized communities in its entirety, both here and abroad, obviously, and not outside our countries, but also in other countries as well. And the fact that there's actually more so a neglect, even like there's social organizations that don't even like prioritize ending AFRICOM or, or addressing the fact of these coups beyond rhetoric, beyond symbolism, and not actually doing enough to actually address these things physically, but actually just more so about tweeting or Facebooking our thoughts about the next coup or the next destabilization attempt. We can't even agree on what is a coup and what is a clear color revolution. We saw it in Hong Kong. We saw it in Venezuela. We saw it in Bolivia, where people amongst the left and rest and left that can't even agree that, hey, this is bad. And regardless of your opinion on X leader or X country, we should be in solidarity with their people. We should start being in solidarity with their government because of the fact that they're enemy of the U.S. or the enemy of Europe or the enemy of whatever country that is contributing to imperialism. And that's why people in your organization, the Black Alliance for Peace, say that you can't be a socialist and an imperialist, too. Absolutely. There's such a lack of emphasis, I think, on anti-imperialism, on that being the center of our aims. Again, when we talk about healthcare and stuff like that, like we talk about there's such a self-centeredness, chauvinism, right? There's such self-centeredness when it comes to improving our domestic advances and stuff like that. These things can't and won't happen without the exploitation of these other people, of the other. With that, we just almost entirely neglected colonized people and, and oppressed people under the boot of Western imperialism, despite the fact that when it comes to Black Lives Matter and all these other movements or moments that we have in the U.S. where oppressed people are 
standing up against their own oppression. Like these colonized people in colonized countries and oppressed countries are in solidarity with us, are rallying behind us. But like there's like such a, a lack of reciprocal solidarity in a sense. And I think that it stems from this chauvinistic notion of socialism where it's all about the American or all about the European or all about the Canadian, you know, and it's like we don't really think outside of our sphere. Yes, in their dream of socialism, they believe that they can convert all of the wealth of the United States into Absolutely. services to themselves without Absolutely. any thought about where that was derived from out there in the global south. Absolutely. And many of Bernie Sanders' supporters are perfectly fine with reaping the blood of the wars and the minimal domestic gains at the expense of black and brown people. And they think that is progressive or they think that is radical when it comes to even voting in general. Most white people are one or two issue voters, whether it's in regards to the right or the left. White folks on the right want to support like, the right for people to have abortions, for example, and they want brown people to stop, quote-unquote, stealing from, stealing their jobs or whatever. But for white progressives or so, quote-unquote, leftists, their main focus is healthcare and free college and or minimum wage increases, which obviously there's nothing wrong with, but it's the fact that there's just very little concern for how the U.S. would pay for these such things, though they have the money to do so. But a lot of folks don't realize that these riches, again, the riches are amassed through exploitation, war, terror, and imperialism. And you wonder aloud about how Bernie's people don't believe the lies that the corporate media tells about their guy, but they mm -hmm. seem to believe every lie that the corporate media tells about Maduro or Assad mm -hmm. or about Nicaragua. Absolutely. And that's, again, that chauvinism sneaking in, people not understanding that if the media is going this far to delegitimize and to co-opt what Bernie Sanders, who is a social democrat or a liberal reformist at best, if, if they're doing that much to stop him, imagine how far they will go to stop socialist movements in anti-imperialist countries or colonized countries that are rejecting the U.S. agenda or the West's agenda, imperialist agenda, places like Bolivia and places like Venezuela and places like the DPRK and Cuba and all these places where we're seeing people, we're seeing, we're seeing governments and we're seeing a body of people who are sustaining themselves and being self-sufficient within their own country without the U.S.'s help and rejecting the U.S.'s messaging about imperialism and, and other endeavors that they have. The U.S. thus feeds off of these lies about China and Russia and all these different other countries, some countries that are not even radical, quote-unquote, but are simply just considered enemy states to the U.S. because they don't bow down to the U.S.'s demands. Again, left chauvinists, and they're perfectly fine with that because of whiteness, because of white supremacy. They see Bernie Sanders as a figure, and regardless of how many crimes he's committed, regardless of the fact that he himself is an imperialist, he himself voted for the bombing of Yugoslavia, he himself had voted for sanctions against Iran and Iraq. And sanctions are a form of terrorism, racialized terrorism. We'll see that, but, but like Sanders is still allowed to be pure because of his whiteness, because of his Americanness. And he's worthy of defending, despite all of his glaring flaws, his glaring shortcomings when it comes to foreign policy and even race in general. Like he's not in favor of like um, reparations for black people, for example. But he's still worthy of defending against the corporate media. And rightfully so. He should be defended against his outlandish claims, his anti-communist claims, even though he's not a communist. But leaders like Maduro are not worthy of 
defense. They're not worthy of solidarity or worthy of us getting up out of our chairs and getting up out of our houses and actually doing something about the fact that his country and his, his democratically elected government is being terrorized. That was writer and activist Joshua Briand. If capitalism is in a late and fatal stage after hundreds of years at the top, then what is to take its place? Minka Makalani is an associate professor of African and African diaspora studies at the University of Texas at Austin, who wrote a recent article titled The Politically Unimaginable in Black Marxist Thought. Well, I think in terms of unimaginable and imaginable without the political qualifier, I think we could say that what is happening right now wasn't unimaginable. If you look at any range of science fiction, kind of doomsday zombie movies, or even like Outbreak or Contagion, I think Contagion is probably the one that most closely approximates what we're going through. There's a way that what's going on now and how the government and how people might respond to it is something that we can imagine, we can guess at based on what we have. So it's not unimaginable, except that we haven't actually experienced this in our lifetime or in a few generations, right? And so the unimaginable would be something that comes out of this that we could not anticipate and we could not think about. So if Trump decides by enacting these war power acts and then declaring a state of emergency to just assert himself as ruler, he doesn't give up power and he takes away the ability for government to check his power grab. That's something that we can actually imagine. We can think about how that might happen in different ways that it might unfold. And we could also think about and imagine how people might respond outside of that. I think what would be unimaginable would be something that goes beyond that, something that happens drastically different. And in a way, to even say what that could be is impossible because we can only think about it in the terms of what we know. So we can't think of how might the government or how might the world respond to this pandemic in a way that produces a social reality that is so distinct from what we know. And then we actually articulate what that might look like. I think that it's always something that is new that we couldn't anticipate. And that becomes that unimaginable element to it. And one way to think about it would be to think about, and I'm developing the argument for a larger collection that looks at questions of the unimaginable in different areas. But if we look at dub music, how it emerges, it's almost accidental when some of those early dub DJs begin to develop it. Or when we think about hip hop and Herc's explanation of when he discovers the breakbeat as the central element to what becomes hip-hop, at least in the early decades, that is something that happens that he was just playing the record, and when it went to the lyrics drops out, and it's just the baseline, he sees that the dancers react in a certain kind of way, and that gives him the idea to develop that loop, and then that gets refined, and then you get all these kind of follow-up developments out of that. So all of those things were unimaginable. No one could think, okay, I'm going to develop this 
and do it is something that happened that one couldn't anticipate. And that is a creative element that comes into that, that allows one to recognize a new set of possibilities and develop that. And so what I'm trying to do in this article and then in the larger work is to say, we have a whole range of political imaginaries and we have drawing in part on science fiction, particularly those who are working in Afrofuturism and a number of other realms, as well as political projects that sought to build new kinds of societies. Those are always premised on what we knew, the kinds of orientations that we had to human association and political life and the political itself. And what I'm saying is that there was something in not simply Black Marxists, but people who we often assume were Marxists, whether they were or not, that they allowed for the kinds of possibilities that no one could know and that they even admitted in different ways that they couldn't outline. And what I'm trying to say is if we can return to that and if we can think about that as something productive as opposed to, which I think kind of naturally it is, as opposed to something that's scary or that we probably should not kind of lean into full on, that there might be some productive possibilities and we might realize something much better than what we have. But I'm also aware that the inverse is possible, that we could bring about something that we couldn't imagine that's much worse than anything we've ever seen. So Part of that, and the way I begin the essay and invoking Fanon and saying that in the world I'm heading to, I'm constantly creating myself, is that we can't see it. And I would argue that this doesn't allow us to kind of rest on, but when we get something that is radically new that we couldn't imagine, then we've arrived at this utopia. And part of what I'm trying to suggest and what I'm drawing on these works to suggest is that they were aware that there was a certain danger in that. And so that one has to constantly be involved in refining and recreating what we have. And so the goal isn't to arrive at this definite end to all kind of political forms, but it's constantly engage politics, to constantly engage one another. And that might be, if we think about Cedric Robinson's work, it might be that we get beyond the political. It might be that we restructure the political. But what that is, if we allow that we don't necessarily know and we can see that as a productive possibility in the same way that artists, particularly musical artists, allow for a productive possibility and accidents or things that they couldn't anticipate or experimentation, that that ends up being, I want to suggest, what's potentially radical and transformative in the unimaginable. Yes, Fanon says we must create the new man, which is a quintessentially mm-hmm. Marxist thought. And he uses the word invent, but he does not say fantasize. This doesn't mean that we suspend rational thought processes. No, I'm not suggesting that at all. And I'm not trying to suggest that that's an accurate reading of Fanon. What I am trying to suggest, though, is that if we take up this question of to create a new man, what does that mean? Like, Are we talking about something that's within the normal functioning of society? And here I think, you know, we might look at Sylvia Winter's work drawing on Fanon to raise this question of what is man as we've understood it, as it's been constituted, 
And she's saying, extending Fanon to what is the human and then how do we constitute something different? And I think that's why when he says, and I'm looking at the quote, in the world I'm heading for, I am endlessly creating myself. That's the part that I am trying to pick up on and say is suggestive. So while I'm drawing on a, a range of people and I'm, I'm engaging their work, I'm also not trying to present them as having provided the roadmap that we have to stay within. What I am trying to say, though, is that with that kind of orientation, you see the same orientation in Edouard Guissant and Suzanne Césaire. They're constantly talking about a new world, a new time, something that is uncertain. That doesn't mean that you approach it by abandoning the intellectual tools that we have. But I would suggest not becoming confined or not being restricted by those intellectual tools, political sensibilities, and modes of thought. And one of the arguments I'm saying is that we have to get beyond a notion liberal democratic futures, or even possibly democratic futures, that there may be something beyond democracy. But what that is, I don't think we can say we already know, because I think that one of the things that the left hasn't quite grappled with in real sustained ways is how those political projects that have been guided by Marxist and socialist thought have recreated some of the same kinds of relationships, oppressive systems, not identical, but at their core, guided by the thinking that this is creating a more progressive future. This is creating a society that functions in the best interest of humanity. And at the same time, being exceptionally oppressive, being exceptionally restrictive. And that involves a range of things. I think part of it is that it reflects a certain limit to what we tend to think is possible for political society, for human association. I think it reflects also a certain blind spot. And this is over the course of the 20th century and Black thought in general about what is the political. So if we look at the political simply as either a very narrow, diminutive sense of electoral politics, or if you look at it more broadly as kind of political organizing and engaging in the society to struggle over resources and the structure of society, that if that becomes our limit to what we think about as politics, then it also confines what one is able to do within those systems. And I think that's part of the problem that, in a way, science fiction, but if we can look at, say, the novels of Toni Morrison, there's always this gesture to something beyond what we have at hand that comes out of the distinct ways that Black women are interacting with one another and then interacting with men. And I think about, in particular, this poem by Lucille Clifton called Won't You Celebrate With Me? And, you know, I don't have it at hand, but she's saying something to the effect of, won't you celebrate with me what I've created, what I've made into a kind of life, being neither white nor man, I had no example, so I made it up. And it's that kind of possibility that I think if we can see in a range, in a wide range of Black thought, if we think about Black intellectual or Black political thought, not simply as what people are engaging in that we understand as politics, but artists, social movements, et cetera, I think there are these ways that it becomes possible to get beyond 
relying simply on what we know. And so that, I guess, to kind of circle back to your original push is not to say abandon rational thought, not to reject the ways that we know to engage one another, but also don't limit ourselves to just those ways of engaging. But don't we already have folks who are envisioning a new world? For example, the prison abolition and police abolition movements, envisioning a Mm -hmm. world in which policing as we know it no longer exists and prisons as we know them no longer exist. Right. And I think that's one of those realms what really does push us to, it does push, I think, at least in my reading of it and my conversation with prison abolitionists, and I'm I'm not sure that I would say that I am one, but it does push us to allow for something that we can't imagine. And so I'm thinking of conversations I've had with a few Black feminist theorists around these questions, both those who are abolitionists and those who have some concerns. And one of the concerns that I've heard raised has to do with what then becomes the modes available to protect Black girls and women who, in the context of the current political order that we have, are the most vulnerable to sexual violence and family violence. And so if we take away prisons, we take away the police, and we try to institute other forms of intervention, other forms of protection, what happens to this population while we're figuring that out? And I think one of the things that prison abolitionists are asking us to do is to allow for something that we can't imagine at this moment. It's saying, okay, we can't, maybe they're not saying it in the exact same way, but I would read it as saying, we don't have a way to see what this would look like. But what we have is a problem because it also affects Black women and girls in negative kinds of ways. Now, what that future may be, if we can articulate what exactly that looks like, I'm saying that that is relying on the available frames that we have for human association. And so one of a range of possibilities that I've heard is that you institute, are you equipped social service organizations? Are you develop community modes of intervention that could mitigate against these kinds of violence. And, and, you know, a critique of that might be that one of the problems is the failure of the police and government more generally, a juridical state, to really value Black women as full human beings. Now, those are both, I think, valid points, and they both rely on what we have available to us right now. So to get beyond the limitations of both of those positions is something that requires us to take a leap of faith, to kind of invoke for known again, to, to take this leap into the unknown. And that could be exceptionally problematic in what it produces. It could be massively transformative. So it's not that I'm saying those who are engaged and who are articulating certain kinds of political imaginaries that might get us to a better future, that that's problematic, we shouldn't do that. I'm not trying to suggest that at all. But what I am trying to suggest is that we also shouldn't assume that what we can imagine will achieve what we wanted to achieve. And we have to always remember that when we institute or bring about some other kind of political future, it's going to, I would say, necessarily carry with it 
certain kinds of inequalities, a certain kind of differential preferences and privilegings that we have to be attentive to. And that is where I'm saying we have to just recognize the limitations of the imaginary. In other words, we have the prison abolitionist movement is successful, but then what begins to emerge isn't what abolitionists had envisioned. It's to allow for what emerges beyond what we were able to envision, not to then say, well, this is not what we were talking about. And so that is not what we can pursue. We have to tamp that down or we can't go down that route. I'm saying rather we have to allow for the contingency of human interaction to say, okay, this is something that we didn't think about. This is something we couldn't foresee, but it might be useful to explore this. And so that's where that openness to innovation that you might see in artists gets us beyond the realm of of merely thinking it out and imagining it, but letting or allowing for how we pursue that and the kinds of unknown consequences of our actions can become productive. And so, again, it's not to discount or say there's a problem with political imaginaries, but it is to say that there's a limit to political imaginaries. Dr. Minka Makalani is director of the John L. Warfield Center for African and African-American Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Mumia Abu-Jamal is a former Black Panther who became an award-winning reporter in Philadelphia before he became the nation's best-known political prisoner. Abu-Jamal filed this report for Prison Radio. The great African writer Chinua Achebe, I believe, wrote a novel of the ravages of colonialism which bore the title, Things Fall Apart. He borrowed the title from the famed Irish poet, William Butler Yeats, who wrote, Things Fall Apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. We see outside our doors, our windows, a world we did not know that now exists. A silent, unseen disease gives vent to massive unease and unleashes unprecedented fear. Political leaders pose and preen, saying little of substance and even less of sense. But in every utterance comes a fevered subtext. Praise me, praise me, praise me. While dozens and then hundreds die daily, and thousands, yea, tens of thousands, fall ill. Trillions of dollars dry up like fruit falls from a tree. They fall, rot, unusable, gone like the wind. Politicians fill the air with words, but no solution is in sight. Several weeks ago, a pandemic came to visit the world's richest country, and things fall apart. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.